This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. Labour and National sprang a big surprise recently by both backing an urgent law change to build more homes, but now that political plan's under pressure from objections amplified by the media. Well, look, this whole plan is actually an outrage for the trees. And almost two years after RNZ's plan to reach more young people collapsed because of controversial cuts to RNZ concert, a more modest effort is now underway online. This, this is Tahi. But first, no one will forget Judith Collins in a hurry, but this week the media swung the spotlight onto her successor. In a statement, Mr Luxon says he's built a career out of turning around the fortunes of underperforming companies. The Wellington-based MP Nicola Willis has been elected the party's deputy leader. The pair will address media in about 15 minutes. And Air New Zealand will air that media conference live. That was RNZ's 4pm bulletin last Tuesday, just after the National Party announced its new leadership team and just before the pair introduced themselves to the media and the nation in that press conference, which was of course aired live by Radio New Zealand and not Air New Zealand. Bit of a Freudian slip there, as Mr Luxon's leadership of our national airline in the past is one of the few things that most people do know about this newcomer to politics, and was also the reason for Lisa Owen's aeroplane wordplay when the new leader spoke to RNZ's checkpoint in the following hour. Well, brace, brace, the National Party has a new leader. Parliamentary freshie and former Air New Zealand boss Christopher Luxon has landed the job. But no man is an airline entire of itself, as John Dunn almost said 400 years ago. And there was plenty more for the media to tell the rest of us about the new leader. And among the quickfire questions from Lisa Owen on check were these two. Who is your favourite former Prime Minister? I would say John Key. OK. Does it annoy you that people get your name wrong all the time? <laughs> um, no, look, that's fine. I understand. Uh, but it is Luxon with no T. For the record. For the record. Though having an extra letter added to the surname clearly didn't hold back Mr Luxon's favourite PM, John Key. And that's something the cast of the spin-off's politics podcast Gone By Lunchtime had a laugh about again last week. Christopher Luxon, or we, I think we're going with Luxton. I think we'll... Luxton. Well, his best chance of becoming Prime Minister is to have a kind of mispronounced surname. Mm. So... Oh, cool. I, I, yep. John Keyes. John Keyes. Mm-hmm. Mike Hoskins. Helen Clark with a he, Was he yeah. Prime Minister? But just a quick Google News search shows that the media routinely get the surname wrong even when Mr Luxon's name was in the frame to replace Judith Collins. Newshub's Amelia Wade got it right though last Monday when she tried to find out who the outgoing leader was going to back. So Christopher Luxon is your pick? Well actually I really like Christopher. But the project on three that night got it wrong repeatedly when it posted that interview on Twitter. And also having a laugh about this on Tuesday when Luxon got the job was whoever texted ZB's Simon Barnett and James Daniels with this. Got a text here says, hi guys, my, my name has no T in it. Thank you, Chris. Is that referring to Christopher? Some people call him Luxton. Yeah, I think yeah, so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not us though. Uh, opportunity lost, says a texter. Luxton has no appeal to the masses who support or used to support Ardern. It should have been Erica Stanford. Though she has a name recognition issue too. I think it's wide open. So it could be uh, a, um, Erica Stanton, it could be a Nicola Willis. Nine to noon's politics slot last Monday. Now, worse things happen at sea, as they say, and in coverage of Conservative Party leadership contests in the UK. 
Live on BBC TV two years ago, presenter Victoria Derbyshire got the surname of the Tory contender Jeremy Hunt horribly wrong on her political panel. You say that the man that you're backing, Jeremy... I'm so sorry, Jeremy Hunt. I've never said that before in my life. It's usually men who say that, so I really, really want to apologise. I'm sorry. Well, that was corrected at the first available opportunity there, and just as well. Now, this week, Christopher Luxon told reporters that some people call him simply by the initials CML, which for the record stands for Christopher Mark Luxon and not Can't Media Learn My Bloody Name. In that blizzard of interviews after Christopher Luxon got the top job, the media confronted him about a whole lot of issues, relationships with his colleagues, the minimum wage and even his favourite animals and movies, and this. But do you believe in a literal translation of the Bible of the um, of miracles of speaking in tongues? Well, I, I believe in, you know, my faith is, um, you know, we'll... I, I, you know, the Bible guides me in terms of my faith. And on Midweek Media Watch this week, Hayden Donnell talked to Karen Hay about how the new National Party leader was peppered with those questions about his faith and the fairness of that. Midweek Media Watch is on the Midweek page of the RNZ website if you missed it, the RNZ app, or you'll find it in our podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. On Checkpoint last Tuesday, another one of the quick-fire questions for the new National Party leader was this one. How many homes do you own, and please don't hide behind a trust? Uh, seven. You own seven homes? Mm-hmm. And a bit like the questions about his Christianity and country music tastes, some people saw that as no-one else's business. Though that wasn't the way News Hub at Six saw it on Wednesday, leading the bulletin with this. National's new leader is making so much money on his seven properties, he couldn't even tell you how much. So how much capital gain have you made over those seven properties in the last year? I have no idea. Well, owning seven homes is not against the law, but it is pretty lucrative because there just aren't enough homes these days for people to buy and prices are going through the roof. National and Labour have both backed a new law recently to allow a lot more homes to be built in our towns and cities and ease the housing crisis. But as Hayden Donnell now reports, the Enabling Housing Supply and Other Matters Bill is currently being buffeted by opposition, amplified by the media. Um, This will allow houses to be built very, very close, front on to other houses on the same site, with, for example, a living room looking into a principal bedroom four metres away. Blinds will be drawn, there'll be miserable places to live. That was planner Graham McIndoe delivering a dire warning about the government's new bill aimed at enabling medium-density housing in most parts of our biggest cities. He was part of a media blitz by the bill's opponents, who have filled the media's airwaves and column inches with a rich array of protestations over the last few weeks. This is Phil Pennington on Morning Report, raising concerns that building new houses will mean having to deal with the demolition from the old ones they're replacing. If your neighbour pulls down their house to build three new ones, where will the waste go? There's no evidence the government has thought this through, even though construction and demolition waste is a huge contributor to landfills and has been ramping up for years. The following day, another concern. What if new houses steal the sun from its rightful owners, existing householders? Upper Hutt planner Alison Tyndale has just written an article calling it Daylight Robbery. The proposal certainly has um, a lot of potential to lead to existing suburban properties having almost no direct sunlight over the winter months. 
Four days later, another morning report story raised the spectre of the government giving developers open slather over suburbia. While these reports were worried the bill would increase shade from buildings, over at News Talk ZB, host Andrew Dickens was raising concerns it would reduce shade from trees. In this intensified development, the tree council spoken to MPs at a select committee today saying, well, look, this whole plan is actually an outrage for the trees. The Herald Super City correspondent Bernard Orsman was equally dogged in reporting objections to the bill, writing so many negative stories that recurring motifs began to emerge. Here's the first sentence of one of his stories from October 26. National and Labour's radical new housing policy will create division and resentment in the community and risks failure, says Act leader David Seymour. And here's his lead from November 10. Auckland Council is ratcheting up its opposition to Labour and National's radical plans for greater intensification. Finally, here he is on November 17. Auckland Council has responded to Labour and National's radical plan for greater intensification. This all begs the question, why would the government be going through with this radical plan to let people build a type of housing that dominates most of the world's major cities? I dug through some recent news reports and found this. Among the 37 nations that make up the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, or OECD, New Zealand has the most unaffordable housing market. Even more relevant, housing supply appears to be a big factor in that issue. Lack of supply was a key driver of booming house prices. Here's the proof. We have exclusive new figures revealing that regions with the highest number of houses built have had the slowest growth in prices. And far from being the unsuspecting victims of sunlight theft, existing homeowners have been profiting to the tune of billions of dollars in untaxed capital gains in just the last year. The latest rating valuations have been released for the first time since 2018. Over the past three years, the average home value across Wellington City has increased by more than 60%. This crisis didn't merit more than a few cursory lines, if that, in the stories on sunlight and demolition waste. Despite being news reports, few of them included any perspective from people in favour of the bill. RNZ's daily news podcast, The Detail, hosted two guests who opposed it, Auckland University urban ecology specialist Dr Margaret Stanley and the NZ Herald's Simon Wilson, and none who supported it. On RNZ's Afternoons, hosts Jesse Mulligan and Simon Wilson again admitted they were struggling to find anyone who was in favour of the bill's provisions. And yet, Simon, I have really struggled to find someone who can tell me that this bill is a good idea. I know it's difficult, isn't it? The Coalition for More Homes, which has backed the bill's intent and general thrust, is comprised of 13 organisations including the Auckland Architecture Association, Unite Union, Generation Zero, Habitat for Humanity, Women in Urbanism, the New Zealand Initiative, Developers Ockham, Planners MR Cagney, Urbanists Greater Auckland and others. Despite representing a broad alliance from across the political spectrum, its perspective was only covered by a select group of reporters, including Newsroom's Sam Sashdeva. Stuff ran a column from planner Jade Kake calling for amendments to the bill which would make it, if anything, more permissive. And to be fair to RNZ's afternoons, it did eventually track down someone to speak up in defence of medium-density housing, urban designer Maddie Prasad, on Monday's show. But these voices were few and far between, and in that vacuum of debate, some questionable or just plain wrong claims were allowed to go unchallenged. I asked Coalition for More Homes spokesperson Scott Caldwell to address some of the more common complaints about the bill raised in the media. Currently at this stage, where the council allows two and three-storey terraced buildings, particularly townhouses, to be built, 
is around the edges of the city, particularly in the south and particularly in the west. So places like Flatbush, places like Hobsonville Point, and even places like Albany, are where the intensification program is happening the most. And these are places which are greenfields. There's very few existing residents, which is why the council has picked these places to build intensely. So basically you're saying that the council's current rules are what's causing sprawl. Yes, exactly. They are stopping development in the central suburbs and they're pushing the development out to the fringe of the, the city. What this bill will do is to reverse that situation. So by allowing three-story townhouses everywhere, it's going to take that demand away and bring it inwards, closer to where people live and where they work. We've had planners saying on places like the project that this will cause drawn curtains and these buildings will be miserable places to live and they've raised the spectre of the leaky building crisis. Well, at, at the moment, people across Auckland, particularly in the less fortunate parts of the city, you have people living in a single family house with overcrowding within the same house. The reality is, is that no one's going to move into these new buildings unless it's providing a better quality of life. And for all those people living in overcrowded homes, that's going to be an, an easy sell because even a small apartment is going to give, give them a higher quality of life and more floor space than is currently provided by our existing housing shortage. The idea that this is going to be a, another leaky homes crisis is quite ridiculous. The Building Act is not changing. We've heard people like the Herald Simon Wilson, for instance, saying that this is deregulation and that taking away the council planning team's controls on where you can build within a site, so setbacks from the side and front boundary, for instance, will cause bad design. Are those planning rules actually causing good design? Uh, will taking them away cause bad design? No, these planning rules don't exist for reasons of good design. If you think of somewhere like Paris, or you think of Manhattan, or you think of London, they don't have setbacks, not from the street, not from each other. They don't have recession planes. They are built wall to wall. This is good design, and the council rules prohibit this good design. The reason these rules exist is to quote unquote protect neighbours from development. The changes we're making are about promoting good design, but they're about allowing more houses. Phil Goff and others have been reported often in the media particularly in the Herald, saying that infrastructure is the real barrier to development. Taking away their zoning controls won't actually do anything because they don't have the infrastructure to allow development in the first place, and that's the obstacle. This isn't correct. If infrastructure is the only obstacle, then taking away zoning is not going to change anything. What matters is population growth and extent of the network. We're going to have to deal with population growth no matter what, but this bill does affect the extent of the network. This bill is going to mean we actually need less extent, that we'll need to take fewer pipes into places like QMU or Drury, because more growth will happen within the existing infrastructure that's provided. What, what they're reporting there is simply not correct. We've seen a lot of concerns as well in the media about the loss of urban trees if we do allow people to build all these houses. Building intensely and knocking down maybe one or two trees saves you from building sprawl, which will knock down hundreds. 
Um, now we can build our existing building infill and redevelopment is going to be far better for the tree life out of our city than building sprawl. We've also seen concerns on RNZ places like the project, for instance, about the shading effects of building particularly tall new houses on existing houses. It's a way more subjective thing than people make it out to be, right? Like people kind of love shade when it's hot and they hate shade when it's cold. And it's about hot half the time, it's about cold half the time. Now, what we can do better is to build our buildings in such a way that they primarily shade the street rather than shade neighbors, perhaps. But shading as a bad thing in and of itself is not correct. Is this another situation where the media reports need to consider the counterfactual here that if we prioritize people's fears about shading then we're kind of prioritizing them over people's need for housing yeah yeah so there's very little coverage in the media about what the costs are of um, protecting you know existing lighting situations rather than what are the costs of not protecting them a major consequence is the average person not being able to afford to live near where they work and play. That was More Homes Coalition spokesperson Scott Caldwell talking there to Hayden Donnell about coverage of the housing intensification issue, that bill before Parliament and the pressure on the bipartisan agreement that's backing it up. This is Tahi. Check one, check two, check one, check two, and I'm gonna start singing right now. Feeling kinda nervous, starting things not really like me. Got the boyfriend, says he likes me. Guess I like him, but it's funny, cause I'm not big That's Claire Rosencrantz and her song, Don't Miss Me, and it was one of the first tunes played out on the music stream tahi.fm, part of RNZ's new online platform targeting younger listeners. Tahi went live last Wednesday morning, and it's now streaming ad-free contemporary music around the clock. Now in that song, Claire Rosencrantz sang that she's kind of nervous, and RNZ might be as well, given what happened last time it went public with plans for younger people. Almost two years have passed now since RNZ first advertised for someone to develop a new youth music brand, and it startled Magic Talk radio host Peter Williams at the time. Radio New Zealand wants to start a new radio station aimed at a youth audience. What do you think of that idea? And the National Party's former deputy Paula Bennett was also amused back then by the notion of RNZ trying to attract younger New Zealanders with hip music. I'm not quite sure I think RNZ having a, a youth station is going to be the most popular out there that, that, that everyone's going to sort of start tuning into. But things change. Paula Bennett's out of politics altogether now and into real estate these days. And Peter Williams retired from Magic Talk this year, a network which will itself cease to exist early next year, replaced with something new. And RNZ's new music brand? Well, that didn't happen last year. That plan involved taking RNZ Concerts FM frequency and the almost instant outcry about that and other cuts to RNZ music collapsed the plan completely. Even the Prime Minister got involved. Radio New Zealand, yes, have obligations to all New Zealanders, and it's their view that they are currently not catering for one sector. Um, but it is my view as Arts Minister, keeping aside that I, I cannot interfere in their programming, it's my view that one does not need to come at the cost of another. 
RNZ playing ad-free contemporary music on the radio is the last thing the commercial broadcasters want. Their umbrella group, the Radio Broadcasters Association, told me this in September. We want to make sure that things like it not only don't go ahead, but they're not what are considered in the first place. I mean, I think there was a naivety on a lot of people's part about the amount of impact that would have had on the sector and whether or not it was a good thing to do. So when RNZ's new platform Tahi went live last Wednesday, it was a very scaled-down project. At the moment the rest of the media was alerted to it at 10am, the tune that was playing was a TikTok hit by US singer Nessa Barrett, I Hope You're Miserable Till You're Dead. I hope they call you out for things you said I hope you're miserable until you're dead Is that just a coincidence or a message to those opposed to RNZ rocking a younger audience? And will Tahi take this further? Megan Whelan is RNZ's head of content. RNZ has wanted to do something for Rangatahi for some time. We went through a whole process, we did a bunch of research, we talked to a lot of young people and we workshopped some names. Uh, We came up with Tahi because... Rangatahi. Um, tahi also means the one, the one. Uh, there's also a phrase that that's not the tahi, so that's not the one, which apparently young people say. And it also gave us a really cool opportunity with what we're doing online, which means we can share one thing a day. Um, so you'll see if you go to the website, when you scroll up, you get to um, what we're calling the tahi. What's the tahi for today? And that's one thing we can share every day as we start to roll out more and more content, will be the tahi for that day. So it is obviously music at its heart. Um, It's going to be at least 40% local music. It features heaps of genres. There's Spotify. There's a bunch of social media. There will be music-related content. As I said, as next year, as we start rolling out new stuff, there will be other kinds of content. We just wanted to make something cool for young people. How and where is it available? And you mentioned they're 40% local music, at least, I believe is the, mm-hmm. is the benchmark. Mm-hmm. Who's choosing it? Okay, so Tahi FM, Tahi.FM, I should say, and then Tahi underscore FM on a bunch of social channels. Spotify is a, is a really big part of it. It's The music currently is programmed by Harrison Parley, who comes to us from ZM, and he has made a career of wanting to really showcase local music. Um, if you go listen to the playlist, it slaps. That's what they told me to say. They told me that it slaps is a very good thing. But yeah, so the idea is at least 40% local. We really want to showcase um, people starting out. So it's not the first streaming service for you from New Zealand broadcasters. I mean, the MediaWorks company has its Rover app. There are various channels which are not uh, just straight streams of its radio broadcasting. Likewise, NZME, uh, which owns you know the other half of the country's radio stations, they launched um, a youth-focused little network through, I think, an intern program uh, called Kick on their platform iHeartRadio. But what will be public service about Tahi? What what makes the RNZ element to this different to anything the commercial radio companies would do? Well, first of all, it's commercial free. There should be one place on the internet where young people can go and no one's trying to sell them anything. You know, you spend time on the internet anywhere right now, you personally are the product, your data... Um, and your information is the product, we won't be collecting that data. So, so no registration required, no membership, no, no nothing I like mean, that? No, I mean, we may move to personalisation at some point, but that will only be to, in uh, the same with the RNZ website and app, um, that will only ever be to make the things that we do better for the audience and to be able to better give the audience the information that they want. Um, and we certainly try really hard to only share the data that we absolutely have to. 
time and you can go look at our privacy policy if you want to find out more about that. But yeah, so we, we really want to make sure it's them, but also it's for and by them. So you mentioned CAC was by the interns, it's by young people. Really similar thing. We want to make sure that it is for and by young people. It's about them. I'm here talking to you today, but I'm not the one making the content decisions on Tahi. When we uh, started commissioning content for it, we got a panel of young people, and particularly a panel of young people who aren't RNZ listeners, who don't look at our website. We got them to come and tell us what they thought were cool. They're the ones making the calls. My job is just to kind of clear the path for them and get out of the way. If you go look at the website, there is a link that says send us your way out. And it's the same with other stuff. Uh, We've already commissioned a number of video series um, and podcasts that we'll start releasing early next year. We are working with young creatives for that stuff. Um, We have an amazing new commissioner, Jodi Hwani, who um, is uh, our rangatahi Māori and Pacifica commissioner, and she joined us from Hui. She'll be working with those creators to make cool stuff. Then there's a link on the website also, which is send us your ideas, and so they can come to us and to help that next generation of content creators do cool stuff. Tahi is not explicitly RNZ branded and in a way that echoes uh, RNZ's first foray into this area which was the wireless and you were there right I on the there. ground, ground yeah. floor of that this is going back more than 10 years now and we probably did this interview a few, at, that, at that time yes could be hopefully it slapped um, but <laughs> the thing was about that that there was music content with the wireless it was it recognised that was subject matter which would be key to it but it wasn't a music service as such whereas mm. as this is but what was learned do you think from that experience with the wireless because after what five six years it was folded up as a brand and and the the content subsumed into the rest of RNZ's output. In hindsight, because it is easy to look at it in hindsight, we never really nailed who it was for um, and and what it was. Um, And so, yeah, there was music content, but it wasn't a music site um, and it certainly didn't have a stream. And yeah, I just, I think we never really kind of figured out who the audience was and what we were trying to do. And as we got more and more into it and we worked with more and more young people we just kind of never really nailed that audience and that's the key part to any one thing is start with who the audience is. Well RNZ's original plan uh, for a youth platform this is going way back to February 2020 it was a much more ambitious plan this was to be an FM radio uh, service that we launched first with music eventually um, the plan was bold you know news and factual cultural content a range of uh, topics um, some I think Auckland based tastemakers and, and presenters' influences would be the front uh, people for this thing, possibly the presenters as well. How much of that original ambition for all that, that content survives, albeit that radio is not part of the plan? Uh, in the new year, as I keep saying, there'll be a host of more video and podcast content um, that, that we'll start launching and then we'll keep growing. What I really am interested in is what the audience then tells us about what they want. How I engage with music is a playlist that doesn't have people in my playlist telling me what the music is. I really love that. Now, I'm not the audience for this, so it doesn't matter what I like. But if the audience tells us that what they really like is that, or if they tell us they want presenters, um, then we'll look at figure out how to do that. I think that's the bit is what we really want to make sure we're doing is listening to what the audience tells us. Okay, so RNZ's head of content prefers audio content without radio presenters. <laughs> Just make a little note of no, that. No, I specifically <laughs> said music content. <laughs> But radio was kind of the big stumbling block back in early 2020. You know, of course, we had the RNZ concert controversy, which kind of put a bomb under the whole thing. But also the Radio Broadcasters Association, which represents the mutual interests of the commercial radio companies, they reacted pretty aggressively against the idea of RNZ having an FM frequency for music. Does the plan still exist somewhere that hopefully radio can be bolted onto this? Because there are still 
frequencies out there that have been there for decades for youth broadcasting. Our understanding is that the 102 frequency isn't currently on the table. That is uh, as part of the stronger public media process. Uh, we're focused on making Tahi work as it is right now. Mm-hmm. If it grows into radio, we're totally up for that and we will make that work. Um, but it's not the focus of it right now. The research tells us it could be a radio station. Young people are still listening to, to radio. But also, could it be a partnership with one of those platforms? Could it be digital shows that are, to all intents and purposes, podcasts that we then put on radio later? Could we reverse the way that we have traditionally done things where we do something on the radio and then put it online? Could we do it backwards? Radio might be a part of that, but I don't know that it will ever be the biggest part of that anymore. As you mentioned, it's hard to serve this particular audience, particularly if you're a media organisation that historically hasn't connected with them very well or, or, to be frank, hasn't made that much of an effort in the past to do that. So how do you, I mean, you mentioned a bit about audience research, about recruitment for Tahi. How did you go about trying to identify what the audience is, what they might like, and then how to how to deliver that. We spent about a year doing research with Colmar Brunton, focus groups, all that sort of thing, um, and we listened to what they want, um, and then we went back to them and asked them more questions. It was it partly, as you mentioned, I think you, you said earlier, um, finding out what people weren't, yeah. connecting with RNZ, and then asking them? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Right. yeah, so so you have currently no involvement with RNZ as a, as a, um, as a media organisation. Tell us what you like. Tell us what we want. Tell us who the people you think are cool are. Tell us, you know, if we were going to have hosted segments, tell us who the people who should be doing that are. What musicians do you like? Um, and our, our, our social media team for RNZ, uh, led by Leilani Mumosia, uh, are all young, rangatahi, um, Māori and Pacifica and Asian New Zealanders. And they have already sort of been making forays into this ground. Our younger audience has grown through our social media presence. Our, you know, RNZ's Instagram slaps. Um, it is, it is, and it is really targeting that audience. So we've learned from the little steps that we've been making there. And then, yeah, this really big piece of research. Um, I think it's, and we're also working with independent producers from those communities. So the content that you start seeing roll out next year comes from the Pacifica community, comes from um, Te Ao Māori. And so it's not, it's not me sitting in a chair going, I think this is what's cool, because no one thinks I know what's cool. Um, it's what do these people tell us is cool, and how do we do more of that? So with that in mind, how will RNZ determine a year or two or three whether it's been a success or not? <laughs> Other than me sitting with Google Analytics, can we say we have done public service for Aotearoa's Rangatahi? Um, have we reflected them? Have we given them a platform to share their stories and show their faces? Um, uh, are we, as a nation, more connected and informed because Tahi exists? Um, and there's, you know, those are really big questions. We're not going to know unless we actually ask them those questions. And will you have to get hung up on things like the recognition, like serving the name, do people know about it? Because anything yeah. that's new yeah. in, a, in, a, in a young and fickle market um, <laughs> or you know, potentially uh, that's 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 the first step maybe yeah totally I mean you know I mean literally I, if you go up to my computer right now you'll see I have Google Analytics open with all the Tahi data right, right now how many people looked at it yesterday how many people did Google searches you know how are we doing in, in the SEO rankings so if you Google Tahi how, how close to the top of the rankings do we come all those things absolutely um, but that's BAU now for us right so that's exactly what we do for our website um, so then how do we so then how do we transfer that to Tahi but I think it's I'm more interested or I'm as interested in those big what is the public service question. Um, and if we can say we've done that, then we've done it right. This is an underserved audience. Yep. This is the whole theory about this. And part of RNZ has this broader 
mission of expanding the audience and reaching more New Zealanders. RNZ is trying something new. If it doesn't take, if it doesn't work, they'll just quietly dissolve it and they won't, it won't be too dramatic. Or is this definitely a building block for something that they're determined to stick to? If in six months or a year we say actually we did this experiment and it didn't work the answer isn't well let's not do it anymore the answer is well then how do we do it let's get it right and, and do it in a different way and I think that's a thing that we haven't been particularly good at as an organisation over time it doesn't have to be a massive stop one day and start a new thing the next day it can just be let's change things over time and try new things um, are we committed to uh, continuing to serve this audience yes young people deserve public media and one final question um, when it was launched uh, and announced to the media at 10 on Wednesday, I tuned in <laughs> and the song that was playing was uh, TikTok star, I think she sprang to prominence a couple of years back, Nessa Barrett, and a song called I Hope You're Miserable Till You're Dead. That wasn't selected as a specific message to those in the radio industry, the uh, the people that were concerned about RNZ concert um, getting bumped from FM uh, being an obstacle to this plan, was it? Nothing? nothing it's, a, it's a banger, Colin. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, no, I checked. I did ask. But it, is, it, it, was, it was not at all pointed. Um, and it's a, it's a great song. It is indeed. Go yeah. listen to the playlist. That was Megan Whelan, RNZ's Head of Content, and you can tune into Tahi digitally at tahi.fm. It's also available on Spotify, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and other platforms. Well, that's all we have for you on Media Watch this weekend, but we'll be back with more on the media at about 10.30 next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch, talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show, and then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.